Temporary was produced on the lands of the Bijigal, Gadigal, Nungar, Warujuri, and Karuna peoples whose sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and those who are yet to emerge. Australia is one of the only countries in the world that has mandated the detention of all asylum seekers who arrive by boat. So while the 30,000 people in the legacy caseload are living in the community now, at one point, every single one of them spent time in detention. Some are allowed to live in the community while their claims are processed, while others are forced to remain in detention for years, not because they broke the law, but because they arrived by boat. Some people spend months in detention. Some spend years. During this time, they are forced to wait without a timeline, often moved in the dead of the night from detention center to detention center, forced to defend their right to safety, waiting for the system to recognize them as refugees. My name is Sasanke Simang, and this is Temporary. I worked in a company. company, sir. After I finished my schooling, in a garments factory. Garment factory. My name is Kumar. Kumar again. Because of security concerns, there's a lot we can't tell you about Kumar. I am from Kandy. Actually, Kumar is not even his real name. I worked there for about three years. Following that the kind of work I did, it's best if it's not mentioned. In relation to that profession, the death threats that um, emanated from that profession resulted in me, me making a decision to come here. Kumar wasn't doing anything illegal, but the political situation in Sri Lanka is incredibly complicated. It's a war that has lasted on and off for a quarter of a century. What had been a political campaign for a separate Tamil state now took a new direction. And Kumar's work drew the ire of the new government. When the new government comes into force, then, of course, my mental situation even deteriorates further. The most senior human rights official of the UN, the High Commissioner for Human Rights, Nave Pillay, she came to your country, she met you on that visit, and when she went away, she wrote her latest report, she says the government's heading in an increasingly authoritarian direction. There were two attempts made subsequently to kidnap me. Let me read something else from what she said. Surveillance and harassment appears to be getting worse in Sri Lanka, which is a country where critical voices are quite often attacked or even permanently silenced. Two attempts made subsequently to kidnap me. So I, I do have uh, fears in relation to that. Because of the security situation in Sri Lanka, Kumar had to leave, and he didn't have a lot of time to say bye to his family. I made a decision within a minute or two that I better get away from here. So like the many people seeking asylum before him, Kumar left his home and his loved ones and came to Australia the only way he knew how, by boat. My family were fearful whether anything could have happened to me. 
they were not aware that I had left. When I was about two or three hundred meters from uh, Cocos Island, the immigration border protection officials came and confronted us, arrested us. Then we were taken to Cocos Island. But from there, he was quickly moved. From there, transferred to Christmas Island, where there were a few processes that took place. Again. And from Christmas Island, we were taken to Darwin. And again. Being moved came to define Kumar's life in detention. He would be woken up in the middle of the night. He had no idea where he was going or why. Uh, Christmas Island already... There was always very short notice given before transfers. As soon as he would settle in one place, he was moved to another. And any connection Kumar made with other asylum seekers was brief. Often, he would wake up in the morning and find their beds were empty. They were just gone. Sometimes, he was the one being moved in the middle of the night. As soon as he started feeling settled, he was moved again. The Australian government has this network of detention centres and people are moved, it appears, at random from one one to another without any warning. This is Ben Doherty. He covered immigration for Guardian Australia. Knocks on the door in the middle of the night, people are taken, families are taken, and just moved all the way across the country, away from the friendships and, and the communities they, they might have begun to develop in detention. No detailed explanations given, mainly... Uh, were details like pertaining to more suitable facilities elsewhere, and hence we need to move you and bring someone else here. The argument will be that that people are moved for management issues, for security issues, and there are reasons why people are being moved around. But the effect it has is it is entirely unsettling on these people and completely discombobulating in that people have no idea are they going to wake up in the same bed that they fell asleep in. So I have such strong memories of this, actually, because I just started at Rax as a student and I was kind of incredulous that this was happening in my country. I had no idea. This is Isabel McGarity, a lawyer from Rax, the Refugee Advice and Casework Service. She actually represented Kumar through his asylum process. And despite him being moved constantly, Isabel did everything she could to stay in contact with him. So during this time, it was in Christmas Island, then Wickham Point, he was over in Curtin in WA. Um, and this was all within the course of like eight months. So you're being moved constantly and that movement could take place without any prior warning to you. The thing that looms over people's heads at this time is the very real threat that they might be sent back to the country and the persecution they fled. People would get herded in a group in the middle of the night. Um, I remember a big group of Tamils. Somebody was trying to contact us. Of course, our phones aren't ringing at 1am, but they're all kind of moved. Everyone's told to get their bags. Um, and then you're you're not sure if you're being deported to Sri Lanka or being deported or, or moved to another centre. Nothing's clear and no one knows what's going to happen next. The whole thing has an air of chaos and uncertainty about it. So all of this moving around makes it really hard for lawyers like Isabel to get in contact with their clients. You know, you might request a phone call with your client in a detention centre for the next day and you'd be told that person is no longer here. The process of applying for refugee status is complicated enough without having to keep track of where your client may be. 
You wouldn't be told where they were, you just told that they weren't there anymore. If Isabel can't communicate with Kumar, she can't help him through the legal hoops he needs to jump through to be recognised as a refugee. During this time as well, Christmas Island had a problem with their phones, so their phones used to cut out after seven minutes without fail, which was bizarre. That the Christmas Island Detention Centre is remote is no accident. It's at the far distant end of an isolated island that itself is hard to get to. Phone coverage is patchy, in fact, non-existent a lot of the time, and people's access to the internet is often limited. So getting information from people, even just being able to contact them to ask them how they are, is very, very difficult in that place. It would just go dead, like, like you'd been hung up on, but it would just be the connection. Sometimes the internet goes out across the entire island. A storm can knock out all connections, maybe for four hours, maybe for two days. You never know. I don't know whether that was an intentional thing, but, yeah, so we'd get people, we'd try and get their details in over, like, seven minutes. Um, often this was with or without an interpreter because you just didn't have the time and then the, the call would cut out. So it was, like, crazy kind of frontier lawyering where you're just trying to get in all of these details of people and try your best to fight a system that wasn't very clear to us either because it's not actually part of the application process. It was this very arbitrary, cloaked, secret deportation process. I think a lot of what's happening on Christmas Island at this point is not driven by good policy, by providing protection for people who've sought asylum. It's being driven by the politics in Australia. The idea is not to provide protection. The idea is to win the political battle of the day. And the ramifications of that is that people are living in this extreme chaos and extreme uncertainty. I've been to jails as well to see clients, and I think detention centres are harder because jails have these processes in place and, you know, they're quite aware that um, people need access to a lawyer, whereas I think some of that doesn't exist in the detention environment. For Kumar, this moving around in the night without talking to a lawyer and without information about where he's going or when he will have a chance to make his claim for asylum or when he will be released, it lasted four years. There many people had gone on community detention, but I was still remaining. Three and a half years I've been in detention and there was no outcome. He hadn't seen his kids or his wife this whole time. And through all of this, he still hadn't been given the opportunity to even begin to apply for refugee status. Three and a half years is a long time to be in detention, especially without any suggestion you've done anything wrong. Kumar's situation, though shocking, is sadly unremarkable in Australia's detention system. Currently, the average time in detention is 564 days, according to the Department of Home Affairs. That's about 18 months. But nearly 100 people have been held in immigration detention for more than five years. And I know people who've been detained for more than a decade, some beyond 11 years. Before Operation Sovereign Borders, people were spending three months or less in detention on average. I was like emotionally greatly discouraged by seeing many being released to the community and uh, there being no uh, outcome in terms of my situation and neither was I provided much detail uh, in regard to why what was happening during all these years. There is a peculiar phrase in the Immigration Department, Argo, that's lifting the bar and basically that means that there's a barrier to you 
making an application, for even getting to the start line of making an application for Protection Australia, and the minister has to invite you to make that asylum application. And in many cases, people wait two, three, four, five, six years to have the bar lifted. Now, you need to remember that you have a legal right to make a claim for protection. You are allowed to do it. There is no crime being committed by turning up to Australia and asking to, to claim asylum. And Australia is legally obliged to assess your protection claim, but people wait half a decade just to begin that process. But after four long years of uncertainty, four years of detention, Kumar finally got that chance. Finally got an interview. It was in 2015. I'd just come back to Rax as a lawyer. Um, and so it was nice to be working with him again, but really sad that in the time I'd been away, he was still in detention. Communicating with Kumar while he was in detention was never easy. And with the added pressure of the interview, things only got harder. So his interview was run while he was in detention. He was in Darwin at that time. But Rax is a small non-profit organisation run mainly on passion. And by this time, the Australian government had stopped funding legal help for people seeking asylum. Unfortunately, we couldn't be there for it. It's expensive and difficult to get to Darwin from Sydney. So she couldn't make the long, expensive flight from Sydney to Darwin to represent him in person. I remember I was sitting over a laptop in one of our offices in Auburn. I was hunched over a laptop. Isabel is trying to give Kumar the best possible legal advice she can, but she can barely hear him on the other side of the line. It was just so bizarre to be sitting in Sydney, focusing on this, you know, faint interview. I'm struggling to hear it. It's really hard to hear anyway over the phone. It's just the worst possible conditions. There was an interpreter, I believe, by telephone as well. I was by telephone. The case officer was there in Darwin. Everything seems to be going wrong. But there was a tropical storm raging, so the phone line cut out um, part of the way through the interview and I was trying to call back and couldn't get through. And then I think they ended up having to move rooms and found another part of the detention center where they, they called me back. So I think I had an extremely stiff back after sitting there for that long over my laptop. It's an incredibly stressful process, made all the more stressful by the fact that your entire life hinges on how this interview goes. And I think it's really hard to kind of gauge how a person is responding to your questions, whether somebody's even understanding your questions properly if you're not actually with them. None of this is easy. Some of the information you need to disclose to a case officer on the other side of the table might be sensitive, it might be considered private or culturally inappropriate to talk about. And these things need to be considered in the interview process. And often they're not. But this is exactly what asylum seekers have to do in their interview allow themselves to be questioned in often excruciating detail about the worst things that have ever happened to them. This is not to suggest that an interview is inherently unfair, but just that a single interview with a single interviewer under stressful and difficult circumstances, sometimes without access to legal representation or even a complete understanding of the process, is not a fair or an equitable way for people to make their claim for protection. The interview uh, took place for nine hours. Nine hours. The interview commenced around 9.30 in the morning and it went on till about 5pm in the evening. Nine hours. That is an extraordinary amount of time. Generally, these interviews were scheduled for about three hours. 
there were many questions that were asked as to why I came and the people who were involved with uh, my trip and also my family circumstances and uh, uh, they simply covered all the details. Firstly, his claims um, were quite exceptional and there was a lot of technical detail that the department was interested in. So he had to lead through a lot of explanations of things related to the reasons as to why he had to leave Sri Lanka. Then they go back to the same details and start to drill it from different perspectives. As the time passed, it was starting to feel like they were asking Kumar the same questions. But I learned to respond in such a way after a while that I didn't give him room to dig into my answers and to force problems from those answers and make me have to re-respond to it. And I tried to take that kind of approach later. The department kept trying to catch him out in a lie, and it was exhausting. Kumar didn't even get a break to stretch his legs. He didn't get food. There were no meal breaks. I only drank one glass of water during the whole process. It's not uncommon for asylum seekers to be interrogated as if they're criminals. It's really dehumanizing and it's also, you know, it's impersonal and yet you're asking somebody to talk about the most personal things that have ever happened to them and their fears in the future. And when it's all over, Kumar leaves to go back to his room with absolutely no idea how the day has gone and no clue what the next steps will be. And uh, once I completed everything and I was returning uh, to my shelter, uh, the same officer came and said, look, you haven't had your meal yet. And he had, uh, uh, he brought my meal along and gave it to me. So while Kumar and Isabel are doing everything they can to lay out the danger that Kumar faced back in Sri Lanka and his urgent need for safety and asylum here in Australia, there's someone sitting on the other side of the table, and it's their job to poke holes in Kumar's claims. I always found it quite confronting putting the adverse information to people during interviews because you need to give them all the information that may indicate they're not a refugee. This is Sean Hans. I'm a former official of the Department of Home Affairs. I used to work in the refugee assessment area where we uh, interviewed asylum seekers and made decisions about whether they met the criteria for refugee status in this country. Sean didn't interview Kumar, but during his time working at the department, he made hundreds of decisions for many people just like Kumar. And it was just quite confronting to sit there and watch someone kind of fold in on themselves as you quietly and polite, as politely as you can outline reasons why the decision may not go their way. He remembers how, over the years, the department made the interview rooms more and more like interrogation rooms. The rooms got more and more unpleasant over time, actually. It's quite stark, grey, and doors that kind of lock one way um, and alarms if you need them. There is nothing about the room that makes the person making their case for asylum feel comfortable. There's two bolted down chairs, and that's where the applicant and their lawyer will sit. You can lock down the person in that room if you need to. I don't think I've ever heard of a situation where that's actually been required. The case officer, they'll be the ones uh, sitting in a quite comfortable, adjustable swivel chair. There is pressure on the person in the comfortable chair too. 
the department officer knows that they hold the future of this person in their hands with a yes or a no. You spend quite a lot of time researching to, you know, make sure that you've gone as close to the right decision as you can get. And for a bureaucratic process, it varies wildly from applicant to applicant and no two decision makers are the same. No two interviews go the same. I think out of 300, 400 cases, I'm comfortable with about a dozen or two decisions that I end up making. And there's very little guidance on how to resolve doubt, how to deal with ambiguities in people's stories and what to make of the person across the table, the person whose lives and whose families' lives depend on the outcome of this interview. I do think there's a lack of training on interviews, interview etiquette, quality control of interviews. From what I've heard colloquially, there can be really negative and unacceptable kind of behaviours going on in those interviews, and I think that's something the department really needs to look at. And there is a real lack of the draw to all of this. Who is it that sits down on the other side of the table to ask you these questions? When people aren't giving asylum seekers the opportunity to provide their case in the best way possible and just simple basic respect, I don't think that's acceptable. (laughs) I don't know how else to put that. After five years of playing the role of decision maker in these interviews... Sean decided to leave the department in October 2018. To be honest, it was down to the um, issues that were kind of happening on Nauru when there was just, uh, I I can't remember exactly how many uh, suicide attempts there were uh, occurring at the time, but there were children as young as 10 or 12 uh, attempting uh, to harm themselves quite severely. At least that was what was being reported. And uh, in that instance, I I felt for quite some time that both Manus and Nauru weren't necessary at all, even if you were, you know, wanted to stop the boats or um, however you wish to put it. But I came to the conclusion that doing nothing uh, in that moment when uh, children's lives were at risk, I I just couldn't uh, live with that, I guess, if I didn't try and do something to help at least get people out of that situation as soon as possible. After the interview, I spoke to my family. I told them that, look, I had this long interview, but uh, as of what the outcome is and how it worked out, I wouldn't know. Three and a half years I've been in detention and uh, there was no outcome. So for me, it just seems so wrong that after enduring violence and persecution in the countries they fled, the best we can offer people seeking asylum in Australia is a process that is so hostile and so dehumanizing. Some people claiming protection are not entitled to it under the law. But some people are failing not because they don't need protection. They are failing because a form didn't get filled incorrectly or a question was not properly understood or answered ambiguously at some point. An asylum system that works properly should be fair and independent. It's meant to be a process to identify those people who are in need of protection, as well as those who are not. After years of waiting, Kumar was finally recognised as a refugee and granted a five-year temporary protection visa. 
It was a bit like a bird coming out of a cage. But because he's part of the legacy caseload, and because he arrived by boat, Kumar will have to go through this again. Had he arrived at a different time and had a successful interview, he would have been granted permanent protection. But as we have seen over the course of the series, being temporary is just another kind of detention. There's a lot on my mind, and therefore my mental health needs um, some help. My children and, and family are also challenged mentally quite a lot. The reason being that they haven't seen me for many years. I want to plan for something long term. I can't go back, but then I haven't seen my kids for nine years. So I, I, I need something. As for my future, I don't know what exactly lies ahead. It's an uncertain future for me. Temporary is hosted by me, Sasankim Simang, and produced by Kara Jensen McKinnon and Miles Herbert, with editorial support from Lauren Martin and Miles Martioni. Original music composed by Lama Zaharia, mixed and mastered by Ryan Pemberton, with series artwork by Matt Wynn. Temporary is a project from the UNSW Center for Ideas and Caldor Center for International Refugee Law, co-produced with Guardian Australia and inspired by the book Refugee Rights and Policy Wrongs by Jane McAdam and Fiona Chong. The podcast is accompanied by a digital storytelling project which further explores the lives of the people interviewed in this series and is linked in the show notes. If this story has raised any issues for you, please know that help is available. Contact Lifeline on 131114.